I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. On today's episode, we have season one's most requested guest, Dr. Seth Oberst. Seth is a doctor of physical therapy with a degree from Ohio University. He was originally trained in sports physical therapy and then is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. He currently has a personal practice in Atlanta, Georgia, and works with all types of patients with a particular interest in chronic pain, trauma, and complex issues. Seth's approach is unique. He teaches people how to regulate their bodily systems, to retake control of their own function, and become self-aware. He states that, quote, Humans are walking ecosystems, and in order to function properly, we must learn how to integrate the body and the mind, sometimes often lost in modern-day culture, end quote. His philosophy is neurocentric, meaning that the nervous system is the main regulator of not only our thoughts and movements, but our own physiology. In this episode, we dive into the following topics, the unique benefits of manual input, attuning to our clients and patients, the benefits of both biomechanic application and patient perception and outcomes, authenticity, regulation, and self-obstruction. And if you haven't listened to it already, please check out season one's episode with Seth, number six. Without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Seth Oberst. Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, you need to check out Anchor. Anchor provides the portable space-saving cable trainer that is powering athletes' training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, provides a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit a-N-C-O-R-E training.com and get an exclusive 10% off your Anchor Pro order for being a more trained, less pain listener. Enter the code MTLP at checkout and get your Anchor and train without limits today. Uh, Seth, have you ever seen this? What would you call it? Like a meme where it's like, Homer Simpson coming out of like yeah. the bushes yeah. I and have then he just seen that. looks around and goes back in yes. when I see that or people send that to me frequently which is kind of weird mm-hmm. I always think of you for some reason it's just like you come out say what you have to say look around and be like yeah that's enough <laughs> and then go, go right back in that is that feels accurate um yeah, I have seen that meme I think it's pretty fantastic I, I was a little disappointed that you equate me to Homer Simpson but <laughs> That's fine. You know, I'll roll with it. Yeah, roll with it. It doesn't reflect your good looks. Uh, okay. Thank you. Or Don't waistline. Worry. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I'm also not yellow, although it does kind of look like I'm yellow with this lighting. Yeah, it does. Which is yellow. It's I could like go a, red if you want. I look the only normal color here. No offense. Cause like Tim has, Tim's looking really albino with his light, <laughs> lighting. I have this big open natural light window right here and it makes me look like a ghost. Yeah. And then Seth probably has like eight 
blue light blocking lights on him. Actually, well, I don't have a, I have one that's yellow. Um, that's like daytime. And then I have a red nighttime one. Seth, I'm asking for a friend, how many energy crystals is too many energy crystals? Well, that is a good question. Um, I've got three right here next to me. And then I've got a couple back on my bookshelf. You know, I don't know. I can never tell when he's being sarcastic or when he's being. So seven. I've got three right here. Look at this. Do you, you go into the sauna every morning. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I'm so jealous of that. I think that's one of probably my one of my life goals. When I yeah yeah, I just an have an infra- I have an <laughs> I have an infrared sauna. It's in my spare bedroom. I just slide in there. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. How long do you go in there for? Twenty five minutes. Oh my gosh! Couldn't you and do then- something similar by just like microwaving parts of you for various lengths of time? You could just get in your oven. <laughs> <laughs> And you, you know, you bring some reading in there, don't you? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's where I do most of my reading. How's that milk book that you posted? The Untold Story of Milk? Yeah. How is it? It's really that? good. It's fantastic. Yeah. It basically I'm... just goes into the politics of how raw milk kind of became this ostracized thing and this obsession with pasteurization of everything. Mm-hmm. And really the, the central argument is, is basically that they were producing horrible milk and we're pasteurizing it because it was making people sick. So they lump into all milk should be pasteurized because it's like basically a means to an end, right? If I just pasteurize it, it doesn't matter what the quality is. It's unlikely to make people sick in the short term, but it may create a lot of other immunologically kind of driven things because of the changing of the protein structure, the homogenization and pasteurization that that is created by that. So it's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm a huge raw milk person. Interesting. I'm going to have to. Depends on your state. Book. A lot of it's illegal. That's, that's true. Is it illegal in Georgia? For human consumption, but not for pets. <laughs> Fun fact. So I get some for my dog. And if a little falls off the back of the truck and ends up in your mouth, that's. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Oh my gosh. Um, all right, Seth, we, you stop messing around over there. Um, yes, ma'am. So for the few and far between people who uh, aren't familiar with you, this is probably a very unfair generalized question, but you know, what's your approach to physical therapy and what are you kind of currently into? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Um, it's always a pleasure and an honor. Oh, um, stop. <laughs> so my approach really is, so I'm a physical therapist and, uh, I've got a practice, my own practice here in Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, I kind of look at myself as a specialized generalist. And so I see a whole host of dif- you know, different kind of uh, problems and patterns that come in. And my overarching emphasis is it has really for the last seven or eight years now been on this concept of self-regulation which is, you know, as, and I've probably defined it for y'all in the past, but I'll, you know, say it here for those listening is that, you know, I define self-regulation as the ability to associate intense sensations in the body or experiences in the body with a feeling of safety, mastery, and autonomy. Um, a large, you know, over the last couple of years, what I have found is that 
there's a whole host of reasons why a person may lose self-regulation and the symptoms of which are vast. But ultimately, uh, there are a couple patterns that are, are really kind of fundamental to those um, experiences that as a physical therapist, I try to re reframe, reposition and reorient. Um, and so a, a large portion of my practice is really focused on airway. So I work with a lot of dentists and um, uh, as well as other providers that have a similar, you know, speech pathologists and, and um, some other type of therapists, some other, you know, myofunctional therapists, nutritionists, and psychotherapists are largely the people that, that I, you know, co-treat with. And what do we find is that, you know, people who can't manage and self-regulate often have a compromise in the orientation and position of their airway. And so I do a lot of work with that. And of course, um, that involves also work with the stress systems um, and the relationship of where people are in space. So that I've been really interested in this idea of spatio-temporal relationships, you know, between parts. Um, in within what I mean between parts is with between body parts. Um, so so that's what I work on. And and you know, a lot of my clients uh, do really well when we put them in positions that they can be successful in. That seems like a very um, long-term approach, right? How so, do you mean? So what's like the average time that someone, you know, mm. is working with you and, you know, the other people that you work with? That is uh, a really good question. And it's highly dependent on what a person is looking for. So typically when someone gets to me, they've seen a host of other practitioners already with varying degrees of success. Um, obviously not perfectly successful or they wouldn't have shown up to see me. So that's a conversation that I have with the client early on about what I'm finding, what I'm kind of anticipating they're going to need. And then um, we just kind of go into it and see where things go. And what we find is that people want to go farther and farther. Um, not everyone. So, you know, the range would be a couple of sessions to sometimes I'll see people for a year or more. Um, I only usually see folks every couple of weeks though. So, uh, cause I, I, I want to give an opportunity for, for the changes to be expressed. And I, you know, multiple times a week doesn't really work in that, in that realm. Cause really ultimately I think what we're all doing as coaches and, and therapists are, uh, is teaching new learning and, and that takes time. Yes. You know, I didn't, I don't, I didn't want to jump into this like right away, but you know, when you say changes to be expressed, would you kind of equate or connect self-regulation to authenticity and maybe exploring that person's identity and behaviors that they express? Well, I think that, you know, I look at authenticity Another way to, to phrase this that I'll use a lot with, with folks who come in is ultimately, you know, a person comes in with a specific problem. My neck hurts, my jaw hurts, um, you know, I can't sleep. And ultimately that is really a, an expression of a person's inability to self-express without obstruction. In other words, I my ultimate goal for people is of course, we want to address your, your, your symptoms. That's what you pay me to do. Mm -hmm. But ultimately my goal for you is unobstructed self-expression. 
And these symptoms that you're experiencing are limiting your ability to express yourself authentic, authentically without obstruction and without excessive amounts of work. You know, so what happens, you know, what happens if we can, if you can do the things that you love without all of the effort associated with doing those things, because you can't breathe, you can't move, you can't sense, um, you know, you can't sleep. Those are problems that are getting in the way of you being your authentic self. So I look at authenticity as the unobstructed self-expression. Um, and so if a person is lost, if they have lost their ability to self-regulate, that ability to associate intensity with mastery, then they are going to enact patterns that try to help them to survive, but maybe not thrive, right? And so they're, they're stuck in this, in this um, uh, uh, they're kind of stuck in space and time. In other words, their, their brain and body are predicting a danger that may or may not be present, but is preventing them from doing the things that they're really good at doing or want to be good at doing because they're using all of this energy to try to get through the day. Gotcha. And that a lot of that has to do with like a learned awareness. Well, I think, yeah. So ultimately it is learn. I mean, I think everything is learning and particularly when we talk about this, I think one of the things that's most missed in the kind of rehabilitation world is this idea of, and this concept of interoception, which is basically the felt sense of self. That is a, you know, a, a, an accumulation and summation of all of the internal sensory experiences that you're having. So that is things like the food in your gut, the air in your lungs, the blood in your veins and arteries, all of those are sensed on some level and are projected are, are, are sensed um, and projected up into different areas of the subconscious brain. And the brain is always trying to make a prediction about how, what will my needs be a moment from now based on my experience through life. And if I, if I can't accurately and effectively make a prediction for what my body will need a moment from now, I'm going to be extraordinarily wasteful in terms of my energy use. And that's going to change how I move. That's going to change how I breathe. And it's going to change how I experience the world. So Seth, you're a big, uh, kind of like 30,000 foot big picture kind of guy. So I think my role in this conversation is habitually trying to bring things back to sure. like practically mm -hmm. what this looks like. And I know mm -hmm. when we had you on in season one, which is an awesome, awesome episode, um, you talked about some interventions that you commonly prescribe. Like I remember like there was a, some kind of like a humming intervention for vagal tone, but mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like, you know, with, with the problem set that you're dealing with, with your clients, what are your two or three most commonly prescribed either specific interventions or like families of interventions? Like, what does this actually look like? Excellent question. And I'm, you can continue to, you know, keep making me get, get as specific as possible. Cause I do like the big picture of things. And the reason I like the big picture, by the way, is that when people understand the big picture, you can best decide how to use that for the person in front of you. Right. And so the answer of it depends is, is really accurate. And it includes my answer to your question here, which is it does depend on each person. And one of the things that I hold very strongly as, as important is meeting the person where they are and being very flexible in my intervention approach. 
That being said, um, there's a couple things that that most, if not all, of my clients are going to experience at one point or another, which is one is I am a big fan of um, manual therapy for cueing, driving changes in electromagnetic energy in the water in their system. And I can be more specific about what I mean by that, as well as changing potentially their geometry, their shape to allow them to express movement in a different way. So what does that manual therapy look like from my perspective? And by the way, this is not the first necessarily, I'm not giving these in order of how I go about them, but Mm -hmm. manual therapy, um, I think has been one of the most over overly criticized and poorly studied interventions in the rehabilitation world, because I think they're measuring the wrong things. They're measuring typically mechanical outputs, whereas what they should be measuring is changes in, you know, blood flow, autonomic system, um, perception of self. You know, these things I think should be measured a little bit differently than they are. Um, but so typically the hands-on work that I'm doing is not going to be aggressive, but more uh, somewhat supportive in nature. So that would be things like visceral manipulation. If there is particular and specific restrictions or, or um, problems in the orientation of the viscera, as well as cranial, um, more traditional kind of osteopathic um, techniques. So, yeah. Uh, I'm amenable to that. We've kind of been looking at the wrong thing with manual therapy research for the past few decades and also highly amenable to the notion that what we're probably changing is more autonomic in nature. But wouldn't you concede that regardless, not regardless of the mechanism, if the mechanism is what we probably think it is more autonomic in nature, wouldn't there be a concomitant improvement in something that is very, very objective and easy to test like range of motion, like strength? I mean, isn't that the foundation of a lot of the like PRI and Bill Hartman range of motion testing that we're kind of looking at we're looking at the appendicular skeleton to tell us maybe the shape of the axial skeleton, but also kind of the, the willingness of the body as a whole to move. But we're using these metrics that are much more easy to quantify as opposed to taking mm-hmm. someone through like a, like a behavior inventory or like a, you oh, know, absolutely. something yeah. a, little, a little bit squishier. Yeah. Well, so keep in mind that all of the things I just listed do in fact change range of motion. I'm saying that the way that manual therapy has traditionally been studied, I think is, is poorly applied. Um, do I think that manual ther- therapy as an intervention can change range of motion? Absolutely. I mean, I see that every day and I think you probably do too. Um, but it's only, you know, I think about it as opening this door to allowing them to feel something different and express movement in a different way. Um, it is not the be all end all, but it is a great window into helping someone change their internal representation of how it feels to move a certain way. Um, And this is where test retest is really helpful, right? And this is kind of a fundamental process, which is apply an intervention and then see how they respond to that intervention and allowing you to form a hypothesis about why that may have worked. Even if the hypothesis is not, we don't know hundred percent, but we can have a pretty good guess, an educated guess in in terms of that. Um, Does that answer, does that, answer your question? I think so. So, I mean, you gave, you know, visceral manipulation, manual therapy as, as a possible intervention examples, you yeah. mind throwing out just a couple more? Sure. So, you know, the other, um, things that I will absolutely do is look at the, uh, so for, again, it depends on what the person's presentation is, 
Um, but we're also looking at how are they coordinating and controlling their body in space. That would be things like looking at appendicular range of motion, you know, part relative motion versus absolute mo motion and orientation. Um, and then applying, you know, what I would call or whatever you want to call repositioning or reorienting exercises typically to facilitate a change in a per how a person's breathing in a certain position to either facilitate, you know, whatever verbiage you want to use, whether that's an expansion um, model or a, uh, you know, mobility model, whatever you want to look at. So, um, and then the other piece that I'll typically do is looking at um, specific in terms of the spatial, spatial representation is how does their brain coordinate their body in space, looking at things like the cerebellum um, and, and coordination ex activities to see where they are and then prescribe exercise to help them re-coordinate in a different position. How do you test that? What does that look like? The coordinate? How do I test the cerebellum? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you have to think about what it does. So it coordinates eye movement. So looking at eye movements in different orientation and positions, um, balance, and the combination of those two as well as, or as well as vestibular function. So that can be um, things as simple as a Fukuda step test, Romberg, Sharpen Romberg, a balance assessment and looking at different, you know, coordination in terms of dysmetria. So upper or lower extremity, um, like finger to nose, um, heel to shin, those kind of things tell us, can a person orient their body and coordinate it in space? And then how do you use that? Like, I'm guessing just, you know, knowing, knowing you for a while now that the intervention that you're going to select for something like that is not like, okay, we're going to do a bunch of standing on one leg, or we're going to just get really good at the Romberg. Like, are you using that to tell you what direction to tell you your interventions in things that resemble those tests or are those more kind of general, like what is the state of the system? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. So are you asking how do I, what do my interventions look like for that? what information do you glean from those kinds of tests? Um, and then how do you use that to tailor an intervention around that data? The initial, the evaluation is designed to tell me where I need to go with interventions, right? So I'm going to prescribe an exercise regardless, just like any, I think any other practitioner would from the standpoint of where are they most limited? What is the position? What is the, the, the most restricted area for this person um, and then prescribing exercises to facilitate them being less restricted. So if, if we're looking at a cerebellar intervention, for example, I may not actually prescribe anything to facilitate, to fix that right now, but it's going to tell me how well they can represent themselves in space to determine, are we doing exercises in standing? Are we doing them on prone, you know, prone supine sideline, because I may need to just restrict the degrees of freedom because this person can't even bring their finger to the nose with their feet together. Right. So we're using that as a, basically a higher, you know, using it in a hierarchical way to determine what are the intensity of the interventions applied to this person. There are some times where I will give a more generalized exercise to, a, you know, a limited neurological pattern just to give them some facilitation to promote motor learning for something that's more specific. Like, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with doing some generalized training to facilitate an improvement in a restricted area. I'm good with that. <laughs> your, your answer is suffice for Tim. So um, can you go back into 
I'm interested in like the more detail you offered up in regards to water and your manual manual therapy. Yeah. In terms of like, what, what do I think is happening with manual therapy? Yes. Yeah. I think there's a couple things. I think one, when you are contacting another person with permission and consent, you are changing their relationship and you're creating a, a pattern, a differences in the patterns and boundaries. So in other words, you know, you're facilitating a regulation through co-regulation. So when we're babies, right, we depend on the attunement of our caregivers to learn how the world is, right? So, you know, we all agree that when you hold a baby, you hold it in a gentle, attuned way, right? Why do we do that? Well, one, because they're fragile, right? So how do we know that they're fragile, right? Because of the intention and the way that we interact with them, right? They learn then where their body begins and the ends and the rest of the world begins through that interaction. You know, there's, we learn trust through these patterns, you know, an infant can't hold up their own head. So it has to learn to trust that someone else can hold it in just the right way such that they can orient their eyes and look at mom's face um, without feeling restricted or suffocated or constricted. Right. So we, when we are using a, what I, what I would call a tuned manual therapy, and it doesn't necessarily have to be super soft, but when we're using a tune, we're, we're feeling what that other person is feeling or trying to feel what that other person is feeling. And that allows a, I think a shift in their, their regulation because they're now getting signals that are fed into their interoceptive system, even though it's external, we know that these C kind of slow C touch fibers, which are typically unmyelinated feed right into the interoceptive parts of the brain that changes their representation of self. So one is that the second piece is um, in order in, in, in the, um, when we're talking about water is that all cell, all, you know, we're 70% water by, by mass. And when we, are, uh, well, I'm just trying to think of how deep I want to go in this. So our water absorbs and emits light. Okay. We are emitting and absorbing light all of the time because we are made of water, right? So when I put my hand on someone's shoulder and they feel the warmth from my hand, what they're really doing is absorbing infrared light produced and emitted by my hand, right? Just like you're, you're absorbing light from the sun which is 42% infrared year round. So when we put hands on a per, on an area, we are literally irradiating the water within the, that region that we're touching, which is changing the vibrational frequency of that water in their body. That changes the structure or state of the water and can facilitate um, a separation in charge right? That separation in charge, negative versus positive over small areas is a tremendously high chart, you know, relative chart. And that allows us the potential to do work. That's potential energy. So maybe putting your hands on someplace, you know, let's say a, a stiff neck or cranium, like you might in craniosacral type work is facilitating a shift in fluid dynamics and fluid flow and potentially altering through viscoelastic properties over time the the you know the geometry of that of that system. I have two specific questions. 
Go for it. One would be, if you would, just compare and contrast for me, you know, your representation of like an attuned manual therapy approach versus an unattuned manual therapy approach. Yeah. So an attuned manual therapy approach is, is, is going to mean that you are paying attention to what you are doing with your hands on the organism rather than just on the specific segment. So for example, let's say we're going to do a uh, mobilization of someone's thoracic spine, right? I can, I can push on that area and it feels stiff. And so I can keep pushing on it until it feels less stiff, right? But how do I know how that is affecting the person at large without paying attention to those details? They may look the exact same, but how is that person responding to it? You know, are they holding their breath? Are they bracing against it? Is it bringing up other experiences of negative experiences that someone else has pushed on that area? Or, you know, that brings up this thing that happened when I got hit in football, right? So it's, it's attuning to how that organism is responding to the, the manual input, regardless of if it actually looks different. So it's the mindset or the intention that we bring to it rather than necessarily um, the, the technique itself. Yeah. That makes me reminisce on like my, my days in physical therapy school, which seven or eight years ago at this point. But I remember one of my, one of my last rotations, we saw a lot of post-op total knee replacements Mm -hmm. and, and their entire approach was because they had, I think a pretty good relationship with a lot of surgeons in the area. It was a clinic that was in Rhode Island or Massachusetts or something. Um, but their approach was essentially like, you're going to bend this knee until the knee bends better. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the expectation of all of the patients was, this is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to hurt. We're going to get through, like, it wasn't one of, you know, abject fear. Like, I don't think they thought that the therapists were doing them active harm, but it it was very much kind of that, that, like that unattuned paradigm that you're talking about where it's like, I'm just going to keep cranking on this thing until, you know, I, an 170 pound guy, I'm going to overpower this 115 pound 70 year old woman. And now the knee bends better. Right. And, and so the question is, is that I think about when we think about attuned, attuned manual therapy is um, what does that person learn from this experience? So if I'm going to crank on a really stiff knee, I might get some mechanical changes in the short term and maybe even in the long term. But what has this person also learned? That one, this therapist is probably not to be trusted because they're cranking on me aggressively without paying attention to how I'm responding to it. And two, it is dangerous to bend my knee like this. How do I know it's dangerous? Because it emits a, it evokes a stress response, which may or may not include pain. So while you may kind of beat the thing into submission, how much is this person, what does this person really learn in the long term about bending their knee and how might that affect how they move later? So movement is not just a sum of, of how many mechanical parts can I move around until I get the, you know, the position, you know, the biomechanics that they need, not to say biomechanics aren't important, but the perception of those biomechanics is also important, right? Yeah, I mean, Cause I need to bend my knee in order to pick stuff up off the ground. But if every time I'm doing that, I'm getting these interoceptive signals, proprioceptive signals, saying danger, 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 even if I override that, I'm going to probably get a compensatory strategy in, in an effort to, to bend, to pick that up. Right. 
I, I can remember that was like the, the number one thing I changed right off the bat when I got my license and started to practice independently. I was like, there, there has to be a different way to do this. Yeah. Because yeah. you kind of like, as a, as a therapist, if you have some degree of empathy, which I would think is like pretty much everyone that chooses to be a physical therapist, right. it's like you leave those sessions feeling bad about what you did. Right. Right. I, I think that the, there's more, there should be more nuance to, to how we, to apply that stuff. Yeah. And just as like a little practical tidbit for the listeners, like I think, you know, um, patient, patient controlled, low load, low load, long duration stretching for like regaining the flexion and the extension is like a much, much better way to go about solving this problem than cranking on knees. Well, they have more autonomy in the situation. So therefore, by definition, you've reduced the, the guarding and protective behaviors. Yeah. Totally. And the, the other thing that, that I just wanted to ask you when you're talking about, you know, manual therapy as a strategy to make these changes to water molecules via infrared heat. I mean, we talked a bit off air before about your regular use of the sauna. Like obviously the sauna is a, a pretty general strategy for probably changing the state of water molecules, heating up tissues, like any thoughts on the specificity of manual therapy versus something that would be more of like a shotgun strategy, like a sauna. Well, I mean, so again, first off, I don't want to make it sound like that's the only strategy. First off, that manual therapy is not the only strategy to get people better. And second of all, but again, it comes back to the attunement. Think about this, right? Like when you've, if you've ever had a a problem with your body and the difference between rolling it on a, on a foam roller versus a skilled practitioner getting that spot that you feel like no one else has been able to get. And that, that internal kind of recognition of, Oh, that's the thing that's really been bothering me. I think is extraordinarily powerful. If nothing else, from the standpoint of you've got a person that you trust, that's dealing with a a pattern that you feel like you've been able, unable to address. So that, so I would look at the same thing in terms of, of any sort of, whether it's exercise, which can heat the body and structure water or, um, infrared light from the sun or from a sauna um, is it's going to probably move things in the right direction, but it's not going to be, I think, as specific and necessary as possible. But again, it needs to, it, you need to know what this, the person's individual problem is. So do I think that, do I recommend that my clients, some of them do infrared sauna? Sure. If they're, if they're appropriate for that. Sometimes it's just getting out into the sun and absorbing some electrons from the light. Probably a good idea for everybody. I think so. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so what are some things that you can kind of extract from people, not just about what we've talked about, because it's very, we've only really only touched on manual therapy based at, um, methods, but we are a jack of all trades, but like what can strength coaches specifically learn from you and apply to their clients? Because I think people in the fitness industry, um, can also learn a great, great deal, um, about your interventions yeah. and where they carry themselves. So I think there's a couple things that I, you know, I think extrapolate to a variety of different professions that are not just the kind of rehabilitation world, which is one pay first and foremost. If you think about any good clinician or coach, the number one thing that I have found is that they're really good with people. So you need to be really good with people. And what does that mean? Well, that means being able to uh, regulate yourself 
so that you can help other clients regulate. Because the reality is people come to see a coach, um, certainly to get in shape, but also there's a strong kind of personal interaction there and there's trust that's gained over time. So, you know, things like being consistent in your approach to a client. What I mean by consistency is not necessarily doing the same things on the, in the gym, but being a, a consistently decent and regulated person at your sessions. Because we know one of the most stressful things that, that can occur is unpredictability in relationships, right? This is what drives dysfunctional attachment strategies is not knowing how a parent or if a parent is going to show up. So as a, as a coach, know, you know, getting your act together, so to speak, before you go into sessions with your clients is extraordinarily important. And I would argue is going to help a person better express their sensory motor capacities just as effectively as how you are going to warm them up, what warm-up exercises you're going to choose. The um, other thing that I would argue is that, or, or, or recommend for all people to understand is that I don't think bodies make mistakes. It's my belief that bodies try to come up with problems to create solutions for problems. Sometimes those solutions are not effective in the long term, but they were effective at one point or they wouldn't have kept those patterns, right? This is the idea of, of this, um, uh, you know, stress capturing so that there's this high activation in, in survival scenarios, stressful scenarios, that the person um, is allowed, able to survive. Maybe the pain was less. Maybe they were able to move a little bit differently and unload that twisted ankle. The brain remembers that pattern because it doesn't want to get in that same scenario in the, again in the future. So when you're looking at people in the gym, you know, and you're doing an assessment or you're watching them move, the question you need to ask yourself, I think, is what problem is this person's movement trying to solve? It's not, I think, always just so much of, oh, they're weak or they're tight. What has, why have they developed this pattern? And how can we look at this from a, a bit more of a holistic approach and, and so we can come up with more options because ultimately that's really what we're trying to help clients do is come up with more options to solve problems. Isn't that really what we're doing in the gym, right? With athletic pursuits is we're trying to give them more options, more variability within a range. So to allow them to solve the same um, problem with multiple different solutions. That's really what I think of a variability. And that is reduced when the system is excessively and repeatedly overstressed. Yeah. I mean, those two things that you mentioned, I feel like I've experienced personally of, I think there's two points probably in my life since I've been coaching where I've been having a difficult or battling a difficult situation or something that's happened in my personal life. And then I realize that it's manifesting in my coaching and I am very unhappy the way that you know, I'm going into sessions and feeling about them afterwards. And it was almost like this kind of never ending cycle. And as soon as that kind of personal thing in my life cleared up, or I was able to regulate myself better, I, I instantly come out of that. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, it's not, it's not fair to clients. But if you know, if you can be aware about when you're being emotionally or cognitively or physically stressed, you can take steps to be able to uh, be there for the people that you're working with. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about showing up in a way that allows a person to feel 
to sense that regulation and then to feel themselves more regulated by your presence. And then the other thing too, was you talked about multifactorial, like I've been thinking about this a lot lately and thinking like, can results truly manifest if you aren't considering multiple factors and lifestyle changes? So if I am a trainer who someone's coming to see, you know, two or three times a week in the gym, and I'm not talking to them about nutrition, step count, reflection, awareness, healing, or, you know, it doesn't have to be I'm providing interventions. It's either pointing them in the right direction or even just letting them think about these things and how they're affecting them. You know, am I, am I doing a complete disservice to the people that I'm working with? Well, I think that it depends on the situation. So sometimes providing a constraint to things, and I want you to focus on just this one thing right now, can be one of the best things that you can do, right? So, you know, there's this, you know, um, you, I know you and I have talked about this before, Michelle, about this kind of idea of a hidden curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that you have a certain thing that you come into a gym or clinic to solve. And I want to help you solve that too, but there might be some other things that we need to do to facilitate that resolution. Sometimes when people are overwhelmed, the last thing we want to do is tell them all of the things that they need to change. Because the reality is, is that they're suffering from a tremendous amount of entropy, right? And which, what I mean by that is, it's just this fundamental trend towards disorder that requires more energy input to retain or maintain order. If, if I give them a million things to do, then that may be overwhelming to their system. And we just want one thing right now to provide some constraints. And then we build that over time. Other people are ready for and need those things right now in order for you to get results. You know, it, it, because maybe they're so inflamed, their, their sleep is so poor and you know, their uh, relationships are so messed up that until we get those other things in line, you're not going to have any success making those changes. That is where getting a really good feel for, for people, having a really solid assessment, you know, even pre-intake, like I'm a huge fan of having a really detailed questionnaire that basically starts to allow me to have a, a sense before that person comes in on where we're going to need to support this this person, whether it's with me or other providers, even if I don't bring that up at all for two months, at least I have that in my mind and saying, okay, when we hit a sticking point, that's when we bring in this other piece. Um, So yeah, do I think all eventually we have to have a kind of a more holistic viewpoint of things? I I do, but that doesn't mean that we overwhelm people with everything that we know about them the first session. Yes, fair enough. You know, because I, I made that mistake numerous times. I'm like, look, see how smart I am? I'm going to tell you 25 things that you need to fix. And then they leave overwhelmed. And even though they, you know, okay, so maybe they think I'm smart about this stuff. How has that helped that person with actionable items that they can do when they leave? And that's why I always ask every session, what would make a today a successful session for you? Because then I know where their head is. And so, you know, that way, you know, it's like, oh, so you're telling me that you want to get stronger, but you're also telling me you're not sleeping. So maybe the best thing we can do to get you stronger is to fix your airway so you're not choking at night. Yeah. And some of those situations are incredibly 
difficult. Sometimes I, I need some time or separation to think about them. Like for example, last week I met with um, a new potential client and they were telling me, you know, working with their past trainer who I was referred to um, from that they just want to sweat and they just want to do high intensity stuff because it relieves their stress. And I, I can't, I'm not just going to say to that person, no, that's the wrong thing to do. And blah, blah, blah. It's no, like, okay. No, like, that would be a bad idea. Yeah. It's like, okay. Like listen to them say that that's, that's great. And then it's almost like show them maybe a little bit of a different route to go and kind of lead them down a path without, I mean, I'm not going to take away at first, like sweating a little bit. It's nothing wrong with that. Um, but can we get these per- people to make some changes without them maybe really knowing it in the beginning. Yeah. And I don't think it's about being sneaky. I think it's just about, about being able to delineate wants versus needs. And the reality is too, this is where, again, being a, an attuned person comes into play. Cause the question I would want to know is uh, why do you feel this need to sweat? I'm not here to say it's good or bad, but what is it about sweating that makes this worthwhile for you? Um, because then I think you can start to dive a little deeper into what is their really their goal here and um, you know, how you can best help them. Because the question is, it's like, okay, so you just want to sweat, then why not just go to a planet fitness and get on elliptical for 45 minutes? Like what brought you here that you want to sweat in this context? Right. So, you know, I think that's, these are the kind of things that I mean when I say, you know, we've got to show up in this attuned regulated way so that we can ask these questions, not from a place of judgment, but from a place of pure curiosity. That is really where all changes occur is from curiosity. Exactly. And just keep asking questions. I mean, spent Mm -hmm. a while on the phone with them, just asking, asking questions. And that's, I basically said that, you know, what's the difference between, you know, having a trainer and just following like a P90X video, you know? Yeah. Tony Horton can sweat, make you sweat. (laughs) Let's go. <laughs> I think I think every book on sales would also tell you that's the right approach. Yeah. I uh, when I was doing physical therapy school interviews way back when, I remember I interviewed for a, a school in Georgia. This is this is relevant, don't worry. And um, the it was she was she was lovely. She was really nice. She was like an administrator that worked there or something, and she was like showing me the building where the classes were. And she's like, "All right, we're gonna get in the elevator. It's on the second floor." I'm like, "Oh no, we could just take the stairs." She's like, "No, I don't sweat." I'm like pardon she's like yeah no i just i, I don't I, I i don't do things that make me sweat and that like floored me and i will remember <laughs> that interaction to this day i do have a question though um kind of so you're you're very good at being very broad in your scope of knowledge you're very good about being very open-minded in kind of what you choose to further your understanding of how do you juxtapose those things with keeping things very simple and actionable and salient to the client in front of you? I mean, do you find yourself, you know, only giving one or two exercise interventions and a lifestyle intervention? Like, are there kind of guidelines that you follow for prescribing homework or tailoring your interactions? Yes. So I, my rule, my kind of self-imposed rule is never more than three actionable items um, in any any appointment. So I look at it, my responsibility as a clinician to read and educate myself broadly but more importantly, to distill the important aspects into this session so that you leave with a very clear and concise understanding of our direction between now and the next appointment. So, so that means like, you know, so the point is, it's like, just because we talk about these things on podcasts and theoretical perspectives, 
I don't want the, the clinician or coach leaving here thinking that they should necessarily talk about all these things with their their clients. I don't necessarily talk about all these things unless they're really interested. And sometimes that's really fun. You get someone who really wants to know the the understanding, but most people just want to understand enough to take actionable steps. So like so that's where a meaning person would, where they are. Yeah. If I was working with you as a client, just by way of example, like I might have something like a positional respiration drill, maybe something with my tongue and my airway, and then maybe yeah. like a sleep intervention. And that would Absolutely. be like, these are the things you're going to focus on for two or three weeks. Exactly. So, you know, one thing I almost always recommend for clients initially, that's my lifestyle thing is blue light blocking glasses for nighttime. You know, I want you to wear these amber glasses from seven 30 until you go to bed religiously. Here's something to, to perfect. Yep. Tim's got his on. Um, and, you know, at least initially, and then we may talk about one thing that they need to do for, I, I always, especially early on, they're never leaving my office without one, at least one thing that is directly addressing their symptoms or main complaint. So if your abdomen hurts or your neck hurts, we are going to do something directly that is helping your abdomen or neck feel better, or at least trending towards that direction. And then we may do one, and then we may do one other, so if you think about one symptomatic kind of intervention, it doesn't mean we can't solve multiple. I'm not saying just rub this sore part, right? Like we can come up with exercises that are really specific to their symptoms and also solving it potentially. Um, one lifestyle intervention, and then I'll typically have, um, uh, you know, something maybe a little bit more global to restore proper positioning or something like that. And, and I would add, you know, Michelle and I have people on this podcast that are who we consider like the greatest minds in our industry. And especially a lot of the physical therapists that we bring on, it's like a client doesn't see that person until they've, like you said, gone through three or four or five practitioners. So they kind of come in with an expectation of, okay, we're going to go after something a little bit different because the obvious stuff hasn't worked. But I I really want to hammer home that point of like, if you're the first clinician that someone is seeing, do like, make sure to treat the part, do the obvious thing. And of course, there's always going to be a hidden curriculum. I absolutely love that phrase. Um, But yeah, I just, I I love that you said that. I think it's really important. Always, because ultimately I I am paid, and as we all are, we work for the the client or or the patient they don't work for us. I work for them. And so my goal is for you to reach your goals. So what is, what is it that you need for me to reach your goals? A lot of people want to, everybody wants to feel better from, you know, in my world, in terms of, you know, from a rehab pain perspective, they want to feel better and live their life. So what are some things I can do right now? So you can leave feeling hopeful and better understanding and actionable steps that you can take to address this problem. Do you do a lot of questions or, you know, upfront conversation about how ready and willing people are for change? Because that's a huge component. Oh yeah. So in my, in my intake questionnaire, I ask them to people to rate themselves on a scale of zero to 10. How ready are you and how ready and willing are you to change? How on a scale of zero to 10, how much would you enjoy or appreciate a coach or mentor to help you, you know, improve? Because some people want to know the steps, but they don't want to be mentored along that process, interestingly enough. Um, and then, you know, how adaptable are you to, um, to, you know, change? And then the other, I think I already mentioned that. And then the other question I ask is zero to 10, how, how much on average are you um, stressed? You know, zero to 10 being, and what's funny is 
the people who say 10 out of 10, they're willing to change are often closer to zero out of 10 in my experience. So when someone says 10 out of 10, they're willing to change. I find that they're, they actually don't, unless we are, it tells me a lot of information because we have to really go, um, we actually have to pare things down a little bit more because they tend to not stick with things. They're always looking for the next solution. Uh, so I'm so willing to change. I'm not even going to follow through on the things you give me. <laughs> I just want something else. Who right. Is, so it's who, really interesting. It's kind of like the same people that say, you know, I have a really high pain tolerance. Oh, who says that? Oh, Every, this is like everyone, an ongoing. Always. Yeah. So in physical <laughs> therapy, it's like this thing that like anyone who says I have a really high pain tolerance is always the person who has a very low pain tolerance. I was going to ask who self-reports like a one out of 10 in terms of stress, like who, what person? Right, right. I, so it's pretty rare to see anything below a five, you know, subjectively on that. Yeah. Maybe like my retired dad who just like hikes every day. Like he, right. he's probably living like a one out of 10. That sounds lovely. Yeah. yeah. That sounds lovely. Yeah. But yeah, so I do, I do ask a lot of questions on that, Michelle, on the front end about what is a person's expectations? how willing are they to change? How willing are they to put in their work and how willing are they to listen to someone else? And, and now how it's willing, all self-rating. So, you know, yeah. there's some, you know, I'm just using it as something to, to start the conversation. Exactly. A conversation starter, um, go over expectations, right? You're, you're, that's inferring to them. Like you have to be ready and willing to change. Another question you probably have is like, I was just going to say one thing, yeah. other, other thing to that is one thing that I, 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 you know, to er, your earlier question about kind of advice to coaches, clinicians mm -hmm. is it is a, I look at it as a tremendous honor when someone shows up for me to work with them. Like think about the, the, cause I think about this when I go work with a practitioner on something like you're, I mean, you know, and I look at myself as a fairly regulated person, but like, I get anxious and nervous about going to see someone new and what are we going to do? And I, you know, how much is this going to cost over the long term? And, you know, those kind of things. And so we kind of, I think, get a little um, calloused to this idea that like someone is taking the time to fill out your intake forms, figure mm -hmm. out where your office is, drive to it, take time off of work or from their family or their kids. Like that itself is a sacrifice. And I think more clinicians should really honor that. And I actually try to thank people saying like, thank you for coming in today. Like, you know, I, I know it's not easy to get here, you know, and make this time. And, and I think sometimes we get a little spoiled or, or just kind of, we, we are dealing with our own stuff and we don't recognize the sacrifice a person is making. So I assume on some level, there are some exceptions, but by and large, when someone comes in to work with me, I'm expecting that they are ready to work. Otherwise they wouldn't have taken on the cost and time to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Expressing gratitude too is always very important. <laughs> yeah. You know, over here. You said that very matter of fact. Like, I guess you got to be grateful. I've, I have a, just a quick uh, follow-up question on something that you guys were riffing on like 10 minutes ago. I, I know before we started recording, we were talking about some major changes that have happened recently in my life. And I'm wondering, like, there, there are kind of two schools of thought that I'm aware of. Like, one is as a practitioner or as a coach or as a trainer, you want to be like you are the product and you want to be the same all the time. You want to be consistent just so you can be the, the best, the best person to solve whatever problem this, you know, your client is bringing in. 
And then there would be the school of thought that says what you really want in that practitioner or trainer is authenticity. And if they're going through something, your trainer, your therapist, your coach, um, them telling you about it, acknowledging it, not letting it color the entire session, but just to, hey, that you know, that essentially disclosing what's going on in their life might be a better pathway for a more authentic, either therapeutic alliance or fitness relationship. Do you have any thoughts on the like kind of the dichotomy between staying really, really consistent with the product that you're offering versus just kind of like being who you are at that moment in time? So I think that I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think consistency can 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 and should contain authenticity. So in other words, when you, I'm not saying what I don't mean by consistency is being a robot and being like completely detached from yourself so that you like show up at the same way. But what I'm saying is being unpredictable is problematic for a person. So I would say that coming in and saying, Hey, I'm going through some stuff in my life. So if I'm a little bit distracted, I apologize or something like that. Um, is still being consistent and authentic without being unpredictable. What would be unpredictable is you don't acknowledge this elephant in the room and you act like an insane person session to session. And the person has no idea what's going on. That is what creates, I think, a disconnect between client and practitioner or coach. So, you know, and I, I think, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. And I would say that that meshes like I'm anyone that's ever kind of met me in real life and has spent a large amount of time with me. Like I very, very obviously kind of wear my heart on my sleeve. Like when it's, it's easy that Michelle can attest to this. It's like easy to know when I'm excited about something, easy to know when I'm bored about something. So I don't even think I'd be able to, you know, no. like contain. Some, right. So it's Absolutely. Just, it's so like, I'm not, yeah, I think you're, I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. I'm not saying that we should be robots. Yeah, I think there, you know, like uh, we had Lance Goyke on earlier this season and he's a big fan of Seth Godin and like the alternative NBA and all that stuff. And I know, yeah. granted, that's for a completely different audience and maybe people that are more like developing a true product as opposed to a service. But a lot of that goes into like the true consistency of interaction, the true consistency of product. And I think one of the big reasons why trainers and therapists do what they do is because it's you know, it, it is really truly authentic interaction. It's yes. like, it's, it's, it's true service as opposed to this thing that can be, like you said, like, you know, ro robotified. Well, I think that's why you see high burnouts in the robotified um, aspects. So, you know, the, the, you know, the, the high uh, turnover in a high volume clinic, I think is partially indicative of the fact that I can't practice and interact how I want to. Yes, yes. I love that. Michelle's our little, like, Michelle's our, our leader in terms of direction. What do you got next, Michelle? <laughs> um, just admiring both of your haircuts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Thank all you. All right. Uh, your hair looks I, very nice too, Michelle. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, uh, <laughs> anything you have changed your mind on recently? This is kind of always our, our big question at the end. And um, you probably have a hundred things going on. It's just like, you just have to decipher what you're going to disclose or not. Yeah, I think. Um, Besides your love for Spindrift? Yeah, Spindrift. <laughs> um, Official I, potential sponsor. That's right. Um, that's a good question. I, I think that I, I changed my mind quite a bit on 
on what I think is most important in working with clients. So in other words, you know, I vacillate between the importance of how, how much do biomechanics play a role in a person's presentation versus the neurology versus their, you know, psychology. And I think they're all important. And I vacillate between where I'm, what I'm studying at that time based on my kind of interest levels. And I think that's okay. Um, I think that the, the one thing that I have changed my mind on, you know, consistently over a period of time is that our ability to help people as um, my bias is obviously as, as physical therapist, but I would say the same is true for coaching, et cetera, is, and I know this sounds somewhat cliche, but is less about how much it, it matters, how much, you know, but you, you also have to, I think the more, you know, yourself, the better clinician you become because you understand your own strengths and weaknesses. And one of the things that I've always, I think spent a lot of time on is trying to identify my weaknesses and strengthening those and ignoring sometimes my own strengths. And now what I understand more is that I want to maximize the things I'm inherently and naturally good at and just make my weaknesses good enough that they're not a liability for me. It's funny that you mentioned that Zach couple said pretty much the same exact thing when we mm. talked like a month or two ago, the whole like really, really doubling down on your strengths to let those shine through and then just bringing up anything that might be a liability. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And I think there from, from that comes a tremendous amount of confidence in your ability to work with, work with people. I th- in my experience and, and knowing that if I have a weakness in that area, then maybe that's a referral to someone else that has a strength in, in a place that I don't have that strength. Um, and then, and- uh- Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's just that a recognition from yourself of how in depth is this weakness in terms of if it's it has to do with dentistry, like you're you're not gonna dive down that rabbit hole. So it's like, okay, I'm gonna refer out when it gets to that point versus mm-hmm. something that has to do with the pelvis. That's something that you per- probably can dive into and fill that gap a little bit more. Yeah. So I think this is where really um, meditating. And I don't necessarily just mean meditating in, in, you know, sitting in Zen, you know, Zen style meditation, but although you could do that is really radical self evaluation. And what I mean by radical is by the root word, which is getting to the root, which is looking at what are, what am I really good at? And what am I not good at rather than the self delusion of I'm awesome or I'm terrible when the reality is it's somewhere in the middle. And what are the things that, that make me, why do people come and see me? I ask myself all the time, why do people come and see me and, and see someone else? Is it, they, you know, they heard about me from someone from, you know, word of mouth is the majority of my, 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 my practice. So it's like, well, what did they hear? I'm not going to know that, but what did they, why are they showing up at my door? And um, how did my interaction go with the person that sent them to me? And what did, you know, how did, how did that influence their interpretation, the, the new person coming in. And so just this, this evaluation of, of, um, how, how other I'm trying to think how to phrase this really honestly, and sometimes almost even ruthlessly looking at 
your own strengths and weaknesses and giving yourself an honest evaluation of what am I doing well and what am I doing not so well, rather than living in this kind of la-la land of dysregulation. And as you get more balanced as a human and get more regulated as a human, you will be able to better discern the things that need work and the things that uh, need support and the things that maybe are okay for right now and you can work on other things. Where do you recommend a young clinician start with that process of self-evaluation? That is a great question. So I am a fan of two types of, of um, I'm going to call them therapies that I don't think that, and this is from my own experience, I think it's very difficult to self-evaluate initially without someone else to help balance your system out. So the two kind of things I recommend is that someone spend some time going through and receiving some, some somatic experiencing work or, and, um, internal family systems, because both of those, you know, so somatic experiencing, which I'm trained in is, is basically the, those, the patterns, uh, that your body holds onto as a result of trauma and stress. And internal family systems is, is based upon, you know, the, the idea that, you know, my personality, parts of my personality have to take over in certain stressful scenarios. And those parts sometimes aren't communicating and integrating well with each other. And um, the reason that I, I say both of those things is that if, when you are in a, a dysregulated state, which the more I work with people, the more I realize that we all, all of us are, particularly coming out of PT school, because it's by definition a dysregulating experience. Um, we're not going to have the internal mechanisms on board to also self-evaluate and, and treat that. Everyone needs a coach. Everyone needs a mentor kind of thing. And I think that doing those two types of therapies, one or the other or both, can be extraordinarily helpful in unburdening yourself from your own patterns of protection and defensiveness. And I would they say- allow you to say, they, they allow you to be more integrated and see more clearly. For anyone that- wants to, well, for anyone that wants to learn more about the latter, the, the somatic therapy, listen to our season one episode with Seth. I think he goes into that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, internal family systems first came on my radar because of Tim Ferriss, like six months ago or nine months ago, but he did an episode <clears throat> that's like two and a half hours long where he interviewed one of, one of the people I think that was pretty crucial to like the advent of, of that type of therapy. And they actually go through like a 30 minute session of internal family systems. And it's in incredibly interesting, incredibly unique. Um, it was nothing like anything I've ever listened to or experienced before. I, yeah, I thank you for that answer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not to say that you can't do this on your own, but I think it's, it's, it, you know, it's akin to, can you heal your back pain on your own? Maybe, but it would be a lot easier to have someone who's knowledgeable to help guide you in that process. And the hardest thing to do with anything is to start or, or mm -hmm. to know where to start. Yes. Yep. If I think about the things that I was doing early on compared to now, it's kind of silly. Like, I mean, like those were so ineffective, but I'm also grateful for those because they guided, you know, they put me down a, a certain path. And by the way, that, that episode that I was referencing, that's that Tim Ferriss show episode number 492, the individual he talked to was Richard Schwartz. Yeah, he's the founder of IFS. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. One of the most, you know, 
impactful experiences of my life is, you know, I'm, I'm really good friends with uh, someone we also had on this podcast, uh, uh, Mike Camperini. And um, I knew him at Springfield College. He was an undergraduate. I was a graduate and we became good friends. And something that we had in common is we both were watching Jordan Peterson's Maps of Meaning course, which is mm. free on YouTube. And I think it was taped at Harvard or Toronto, University of Toronto. But, you know, it's the first time I've really been exposed to someone asking me questions or getting me to ask questions about myself and my mm-hmm. thoughts and going down through picking apart stories and things that happen in our life and, you know, just making those connections and thinking about myself, my identity, what I want, who I am. Um, not just what I want to do. And that was an eye-opening experience for me personally. Um, and then of course, like I've worked with you uh, for a few months, which was, which was also awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's many different ways to get to where we want to go, but we have to start on that process and we have to understand what are some of the, 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 you know, kind of bottlenecks that are preventing us from moving forward. Yeah. Some people it's knowledge, some people it's personality, some people it's, um, you know, environmental. Yeah. And also from a business perspective, I've been doing that from in that kind of realm lately. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly introverted person. It's not to say that's who I am. I can be extroverted when I want to be, but, you know, if that's considered a weakness for networking and referral base, well, it's like, okay, can we find the person who's extremely, you know, extroverted and like kind of knows everyone and then, you know, develop a relationship with that person in terms Mm -hmm. of referrals and getting yourself out there. Um, So kind of diving deep in every, every uh, realm of your life. Well, think about it this way. I mean, I would say almost all of organized life is essentially network based, right? And so you're a node within this network. And where are the different nodes and where are they maybe uh, over or under facilitated? Yeah, absolutely. Do you know who Jordan Pearson is, Seth? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've followed a lot of his stuff. Just making sure. I feel like I've asked you that question personally before. Probably. You you remind me of him a little bit. (laughs) That's high praise. Hopefully not the drug, hopefully not the drug addicted part. No, 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 no. Formerly drug addicted. <laughs> That's right. He also goes on podcasts wearing a full tuxedo, which I learned recently. And that's oh. just one of the best things. It's a power move. Yeah. You know, Seth, where's your tux? I know. I'm wearing a flannel <laughs> shirt here like a schlub. Classic. <laughs> uh, so where can people find... Oh, wait. No, this is the last question I want to ask you. What was your last workout? My last workout was... Uh, when, or what did I do? Both. My last workout was yesterday and I did, um, I've just been building a home, a little home gym. And so I, I just got a cable tower, like a tower. Um, and so I did a classic bodybuilding split of chest and triceps. Love it. I know swole get big or die trying. (laughs) 
Oh my goodness. You got me and on that one. Now, where did you put the energy crystals in the room when you were doing your tricep kickback? They stay in my office. The, 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 um, the energy crystals stay in my office. Yeah. So do you do like, like chakra, like chakra isolation work or is that like after core? You know, chakras are interesting. They're not really something I've looked at a whole lot. Um, but I think it's just like, it's like these meridians in Chinese medicine, right? There's something to the, there's the, these locations, you know? Uh, but no, I did not do any, you know, chakra mobilization uh, work. Although you perhaps I should. For 2023. That's right. That's right. Next year, learning Season plan. Three. I'll, uh, I'll look at that in my radical self-evaluation. Please, we want to report. How many hours a week do you designate towards learning? Because sometimes, you know, when it takes you like two weeks to answer an email, I'm like, <laughs> it's okay because I know that he's locked in a room somewhere. You know, and it's on purpose. Yeah, um, I do lock myself in the in my basement office a lot, which is where I'm at now. Um, I minimum of so you may be surprised to hear this, but a minimum of only two hours a week. Uh, sometimes though it's four, um, but rarely more than four. I would love that to be double or triple, but the reality of running a couple of businesses, ha having a wife and a life is challenging. Yes, um, so, but I think as I, as my schedule gets busier, I've actually become better and better at being at learning quickly and knowing exactly what I want to go after in terms of learning. There's a lot, when you, when you have some constraints, like in anything in life, including with movement, you know, we need constraints. Um, I actually find that with some of that pressure, I'm better able to hone in on what I think is important to read. That's fair enough. So mostly I'm just not getting back to your emails because I just don't want to. <laughs> Cold. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, I, that kind of I'm talk not is not going to get you invited back for season three, Seth. <laughs> Seth can't do anything anything wrong. We're going to have to know? find a new post-Super Bowl guest. That's right. That's right. That's right. Happy maybe, Valentine's Day, Michelle. Maybe Thank The Rock you. is available. So I better get flowers. <laughs> well, The Rock's voice is probably a little hoarse from his shouting match yesterday. Per, per, not to go game. too far down that rabbit hole, but I thought that was the greatest position that they invented for that game for no reason whatsoever. It was like, we're going to give the rock a five minute soliloquy here. Yes. Yeah, that was I was cooking good. dinner and I heard him and I was like, what is this? I think every, I think every football game, like not just professional, like high school, like middle school football should have a hype man of that intensity. I yeah, I agree. So that's like, I why am I still on for this? <laughs> no, this is great. All right. Uh, how can people find out more about you? Yeah. So um, you can uh, find me on my me. website. My website is sethoberst.com. Um, my Instagram, I think, is at sethoberst. Um, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, too. I think Twitter's at sethoberstdpt. I admittedly haven't posted anything for a while, but I do plan to do more of that. Um, I also offer mentorship for clinicians one-on-one, -on -one, and then my Goal, clinicians, coaches, that kind of thing. Um, and then my goal too, is to start at some point doing more of a group mentorship kind of situation. I did have a course kind of pre COVID that I was teaching kind of all over. Um, and I, I'm not sure what that's going to look like in the future. Um, I enjoy teaching. I think of myself as an educator, so it's just the best way to do that. But I definitely do foresee myself doing some, some group mentorship kind of online coursework. Um, that kind of thing. So 
you can find all that through my website. It's not going to be on there right now, but the best thing to do is to um, follow me on Instagram and then uh, subscribe to my email newsletter, which you can find on my website that you'll get first dibs on all that stuff. Perfect. And uh, I did actually send someone your website the other day because I thought it was a good description of what you do. Mm. Very short, mm-hmm. concise. And uh, I thought it was great. Go check Thank it out. You. Thank you. Seth, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Seth. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. And the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.